Great to see you all. Uh, I would like to recognize the veterans in our room first. Uh, do we have veterans? Please stand if you're a veteran and just let us thank you. <clears throat> all right. Thank you all for your service. It's great. Uh, if there are Sunday school kids, it's time for, to be dismissed. Uh, otherwise, uh, we will continue on. I want to thank the worship band for their uh, awesome work every week. Thank you very much. And uh, I'd also like to thank Ethan and Brooks and all his guys back there. I never say thank you to you guys. You guys do a great job back there. So thank you. Thank you for what you do. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you that we have a house to worship in. And Lord, uh, we seek to glorify you today as we continue our study of the Reformation. And uh, this week, Lord, we're going to talk about the gospel revealed. After last week, we talked about the gospel concealed. And what a work that you did uh, to recover this gospel that had been lost. And so uh, help us as we study it today, Lord. We just thank you for your grace and letting us see it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So when a football game begins... You have 11 guys on the kicking team on one side. You have 11 guys on the other side of the field, the receiving team. And when all the people are arranged in their proper place, uh, then the referee blows the whistle, and that means that the game can begin. Uh, and the Reformation was kind of the same way. Over the course of a couple centuries, God arranged all the pieces so that they were in the proper place, and all the tinder was set, and all Luther had to do at that point was light the match and the Reformation could begin. And that's exactly uh, what happened. So what happened, uh, we talked about last week, there was uh, the corruption of the Catholic Church and there was much to be said last week about the corruption and the abuses of the Catholic Church. But there were also uh, several other factors that were also uh, present at the time that made the time ripe for Reformation. So we're gonna talk about what they were. Six additional factors that made the time ripe for Reformation, and one was the rise of nations. You had these, these kings that were presiding over these city-states and they did not want to be subject to popes. We had the rise of universities. People were learning how to read and they were studying for themselves. They were learning their own truth and they did not want the papacy telling them what truth was. You had the invention of the printing press. This was a huge deal because now you didn't have to painstakingly hand copy uh, a writing anymore. Now you could mass produce books, including Bibles, and they could, be get, they, they could be received by the common man. Literacy was on the rise and the invention of the printing press was a big factor. A fourth thing was that the Renaissance was beginning. And the Renaissance was marked by uh, its return to reason, uh, and it didn't agree with what they thought was papal superstition and, and, and the superstition that they thought the papacy was trying to impose on people. The fifth thing was that the Ottoman Turks captured Constantinople in, not 1543, 1453, my slide is wrong. Uh, in 1453, the Turks ca uh, captured Constantinople that was the last uh, bastion of the old Roman Empire. And when the Turks came in and took over, uh, the Christians fled and they took their uh, Christian manuscripts with them, their old Greek manuscripts, older than anything that Rome had. And they took their manuscripts and they fled and they went into the Western world. And so uh, it became clear that they had better manuscripts than what Rome had and there was a, a need for new translations of the Bible. And then Erasmus gave them a new translation of the Bible, a new translation of the Greek Bible that was better than Jerome's Latin Vulgate. 
And among the changes that happened were, were that uh, Matthew 4.17 we talked about last week, uh, the word metanoia was not translated do penance anymore. It was translated repent, which is an inward change of mind, different than, than an act of doing penance. And uh, Hail Mary, full of grace, was changed to Hail Mary, favored one. That's what the actual Greek word means. And so we had all of these things happening right at the time of Luther that made the time uh, ripe for Reformation. But Luther came on the scene not intending to be a revolutionary, but he saw things that bothered him as time went on. He was born in 1483 in a place called Eisleben, Germany. Uh, and he was born to this couple, Hans and Margareta Luther. Uh, Margareta's the one on the right, in case you can't tell. <laughs> the artist could have probably done a nicer job with her. Uh, his father was a miner, uh, but he wasn't, he wasn't a poor person. He had actually just acquired uh, a, a copper mine for himself, and he was, going to, he, he was fairly prosperous as far as miners go. And he had great plans for Martin because Martin was a very smart, very precocious kid. Uh, and so Hans wanted Martin to become a lawyer. Uh, bad mistake. <laughs> so what happened was uh, Martin entered the university in 1501. He entered the University of Erfurt. Uh, and he spent some time there. Uh, he graduated from the University of Erfurt. And uh, what happened was uh, on one trip, that he was going uh, back to the University of Erfurt from his home. He got caught in this most wicked and nasty thunderstorm with lightning flashing all around him, hitting his feet, hitting trees, and he fell to his knees and he said, St. Anne, if you will save me, I vow to enter the monastery. Now, St. Anne was uh, considered to be the mother of Mary. That's not found in the Bible anywhere, but but St. Anne was considered uh, to be Mary's mother, and St. Anne was also the patron saint of minors. So uh, Hans Luther's uh, patron saint would have been St. Anne. Anyway, Luther enters the monastery in 1505, and his father is, of course, irate because he had these incredible plans that Martin was going to be a lawyer and he was going to change the world uh, through law. And so he enters this Augustinian monastery. And all I can say uh, to Martin is, is, good call, young man, good call. Much better to enter the monastery uh, or at least go into service to God than to go into uh, the law. Well, one of the reasons why he wanted to enter the monastery was because the monastery was a great place to build up your treasury of merit, right? You, you didn't have to do anything else. You weren't working in some other vocation. You could do good works. Uh, you could spend time in prayer. You could make the sacraments. You could teach others. And all this built up your treasury of merit. Because remember, you needed to build up that treasury of merit because if your treasury of merit exceeded your sin debt at the time of your death, then you don't have to spend time in purgatory. But vice versa, if your sin debt exceeds your treasury of merit, then you have to spend time in purgatory after your, debt, after your death. And so uh, he wanted to be part of this Augustinian monastery so that he could build up this treasury of merit. And, and, and this is what Luther said about his time in the monastery. He said, I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk was, was, got to heaven by his monkery, uh, it, it was I. And the brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, 
prayers, readings, and other works. So you see this monastic life is all about doing work and trying to pour into your treasury of merit so that uh, you hope that your good works and your treasury of merit exceeds your sin uh, at the time of your death. When he did his first mass, he was trembling with fear because here you have Martin Luther, a man, he knows he's a sinful man, and he's He's raising up the elements, the wine and the bread, and, and he's, he's actually changing the, the, the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ. And he's standing there thinking, how can I, a sinful person, uh, actually hold the body and blood of Christ in my hands? Uh, about his sin, he tried to confess them all immediately because he didn't want to have the stain of sin on him when he was going to be conducting a mass. And so he would confess each and every one as fast as he could, even the most minute things that he could possibly think of, he would confess them. But then he got to thinking, well, what if I forget one? Or what happens if uh, I don't even recognize a certain sin in my life? You know, most of us have sins in our lives that we don't even recognize as sin. Uh, Luther thought, well, if I don't confess that, am I going to hell or purgatory for that? Or, uh, or, or even worse, uh, what would happen if my motivation for confessing uh, my sin was simply to avoid purgatory? Even that's a sin if my motivation is wrong. So Luther just spun himself in a circle, getting himself crazy about his sin. And, and he's recognizing as time goes on uh, that he, he does not have the ability to save himself, that this treasury of merit uh, is not something that, that is going to work for him because his treasury of merit is never going to exceed uh, his sin. And as he thought about this, he, he thought that he feared God more than he loved him because God was giving him this impossible standard that he needed to live up to, but that he couldn't live up to. And so uh, he actually at one point said, uh, do I love God? No, I don't love God. I hate God because this standard that he's given me is impossible to keep. And he, he, uh, he suffered from a condition that he called Anfektungen. It's a German word that's hard to translate in English, but it means despair of the soul. Like he could not uh, become not depressed about how uh, his condition of sin uh, was. And so uh, he was a priest and he's trying to earn his way. And then in 1510, uh, five years after he had entered the monastery, he was honored with a chance to go to Rome. And he was so excited because he was going to get to see all the relics himself and, and see how all these holy people in Rome conducted themselves and, and see these grand buildings that were there. Uh, and when he got there, uh, so often when we go to some place, we think it's going to be great. It's, it's a little less than we had thought it was going to be. And, and that was what happened to Luther. Uh, the buildings were grand for sure, uh, but the people were not. He saw sin, as much sin there as he saw anywhere else in his life. Uh, and, and that was a great disappointment to him. Uh, he would lead the mass because that's what he went there to do. Uh, but he saw other priests, they were cranking out six, seven masses a day. The, these churches were like mills. They were trying to rush people in. Uh, get, the, get through the Eucharist and then drop the money in the plate and rush him back out again. And they were, it was actually fundraising. They were just trying to raise as much money as they could, as fast as they could. Uh, one of the things that you would do when you were in Rome is you would climb the steps of the Lateran Basilica. And that's what this is. The Lateran Basilica, these steps are said to be the actual steps that Jesus climbed when he went to visit Pontius Pilate. And they were moved from Jerusalem to Rome by Helena, uh, who was Constantine's mother. And so that would have happened in the fourth century. And what you did was you climbed each and every one of those steps and you kissed the step 
and you said a prayer, and at each step you would remove a certain amount of years of purgatory from your life, uh, from, from your time spent in purgatory. And so as Martin Luther is climbing these steps, 28 stairs in all, he reaches the top and he says, who knows if it is so. Uh, and so doubt is creeping in. He, he's, he's, he's understanding that, that this life of building into the treasury of merit, you can never be assured that you have any kind of salvation. Uh, and so uh, he, he, he had no assurance of his salvation. And when he, he returned to Erfurt, uh, he, he, uh, he was mentored by a man named Staupitz. And Staupitz said, there is a new position open at the University of Wittenberg, and I actually hold this position, but I will give it up to you. Why don't you go there and you teach uh, the Bible at the new University of Wittenberg? And Witten, uh, Wittenberg was a, a new place, and they wanted to compete with the great universities of the day, and Staupitz thought that, that Luther would make a great teacher. And so Luther agreed, but the problem was that he didn't know the Bible. He knew what people said about the Bible, but he never had read the Bible for himself. And so he had to go and first earn his PhD, which he did in 1512. Uh, and then in 1513, he started lecturing on the Psalms. And he comes to Psalm 22, uh, the, the Messianic Psalm where Jesus says, oh God, why have you forsaken me? And Luther's thinking, how could Jesus be forsaken? He lived a perfect life. He had no sin in his life. Uh, so how could he be forsaken? But then at the same time, Luther is comforted that somehow uh, Jesus is, is uh, suffering the same Anfektungen than he, that he is, uh, both suffering from this despair of the soul. And so uh, Luther just continues to process this, and he realizes that it must be because Jesus wasn't suffering for his own sin, he was suffering for the sin of mankind. And so uh, that, that starts to register with Luther. And then later on, he started to lecture on the book of Romans. And he comes to Romans uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17, and this is what it says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Luther struggled with, these, with this verse, these two verses. Uh, he was a diligent monk, but he understood that there was no amount of good work that he was going to do uh, to make his treasury of merit uh, be where it needed to be. And so he, he's, he's pondering this. What is this righteousness of God? Uh, and, and how does the just shall live by faith work together with that? Uh, how can you reconcile this? And he, he pondered these things day and night, night and day, until he came to the point where he had what he called his breakthrough. And this is what he said. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. And thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors to paradise. Can you imagine what that must have felt like for Luther to finally get the gospel after uh, years of being uh, held under this yoke of, of the teaching of the church uh, that was so works-based, uh, and Luther is having this despair of the soul where he thinks he can never get to heaven, and then to finally understand the gospel for the first time. Uh, you and I, you know, we understand the gospel, and this is not new to us, but, but in Luther's day, this was brand new. Uh, this, this was a recovery, a rescue of the gospel that had been lost for all these years. So 
Luther thought that God had given us a standard that we had to uphold if we wanted to be saved. But what he finally came to realize is that it's God's righteousness that we're talking about. When he understood the verse properly, it's righteousness is not earned by works. It's God's righteousness that is being given to us. And all we need to do is cling to Jesus to have it. We're not doing works to get into heaven. We're not doing works to avoid uh, purgatory. All we're doing is living a life of faith that will show itself in works uh, and grabbing on to the righteousness of Christ. Christ's death paid the debt that we owed, and there's nothing that we have to do to earn it. And, and that's a breakthrough. That's the core conviction of the Reformation, right? Justification by faith alone. And when Luther grasped this, uh, everything changed in his life. Uh, he came to understand that, that everything, that, that uh, all these entrapments of the Catholic Church were not only uh, extra uh, and unnecessary, they were actually detrimental to salvation. And so that is what got Luther so upset about this sale of indulgences because they were layering stuff onto uh, the message of salvation, which first of all wasn't true, and second of all uh, was really corrupt. And so uh, that's why he was interested in this, this sale of indulgences. And this was the thing that got Luther uh, started in terms of, of uh, what he was upset about to begin with. So the practice of indulgences had gone on uh, for centuries, uh, but it had really reached its peak in Luther's day. Because in Luther's day, uh, you could, you, you could uh, buy indulgences not only for yourself uh, to, to save time off your time in purgatory, but you could buy uh, time off your mother's time in purgatory, for example. So you could pay money and you know, your mom could, could get a thousand years off of her sentence of purgatory. Well, in Luther's day, there was this place in Rome called Old St. Peter's Basilica. This is the predecessor to what we know now of St. Peter's Great Cathedral in Rome. But in Luther's day, uh, they, th this building was designed and built by Constantine over a thousand years earlier, and it was fallen into a, com a complete state of disrepair. They wanted to rebuild the building, rehab the thing, and Michelangelo had uh, designed that dome that is there today uh, that was supposed to be built, but they just had no money to build it. So uh, that was a problem because the, this old basilica was in disrepair and no money to, to fix it. Well, there was a plan to fix it, uh, and here's what happened. Uh, this guy, Archbishop Albert of Mainz, he obtained his office of being an archbishop by the practice of simony. Simony, we talked about last week, is the practice of actually buying your church office. So he bought the, the office of archbishop. But to do it, he had to borrow a whole bunch of money from a bunch of friends, and so he finds himself in a ton of debt. And so he says uh, to Pope Leo X, this guy, I have a plan. And the plan was, I am going to sell these indulgences and I'm going to use the money that I get from the sale of these indulgences to pay off my debt. And Pope Leo, being righteous like he was, said, that sounds like a great idea. You send me half and we got a deal. <laughs> and so the conspiracy is in, right? The, the, the fix is going on. So they're going to sell these indulgences. Pope Leo is going to take his half of the money, build the basilica, uh, St. Peter's, and uh, Archbishop uh, Albert, he's going to pay off the debt that he owes. So... They started hiring these traveling salesmen to go around selling these indulgences in the land. And this guy, Johann Tetzel, he was a Dominican friar and a salesman extraordinaire. If you're going to sell stuff, uh, it's good to create a need, right? So he scared people to death 
uh, first of all. And then he came up with this really cool slogan that he used to say. It's probably too small for you to read, but it says, when the pieces of the money in the chest do ring, quickly do souls out of purgatory spring. So isn't that catchy? So you walk around saying your mom is in purgatory for a thousand years and then you hit him with this slogan and the money started pouring in. Uh, and so he was a fantastic uh, salesman. Uh, and when you bought an indulgence, you got a certificate like this one, signed by Johann Tetzel. In the authority of all the saints and in compassion towards thee, I absolve thee from all sins and misdeeds and remit all punishment for 10 days. So depending on the amount of money that you paid, you, you could buy levels of indulgences. So if you paid more money, you could get more time. And if you paid enough money, you could be free from purgatory altogether. And so uh, Tetzel was a master at this, going around uh, selling these indulgences. Well, Luther realized that this practice was corrupt, uh, that it was worthless, uh, and the people were being misled and it needed to stop. And so he wanted to have a debate. And what he did was, I know you can't see that either, but that's what the 95 theses looked like. He went to the church door at Wittenberg and he nailed these 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, which as I said last week, was not a uh, defiant protest against the king or, or the pope or anything. It was just a call for debate. And that's why he wrote these indulgences in Latin. He wanted the academics to debate the issue of um, of these indulgences. And so he asked the question, how can you buy an indulgence for a sin you intend to commit that you haven't even committed yet? Like, isn't there something wrong with that uh, where you're preempting the guilt by buying the indulgence? That is a get out of jail free card. And he says, you know, if the church has the power to grant these indulgences, what are we doing charging for it? Shouldn't this be free? Isn't this something that the church should do as a matter of its own grace? Uh, isn't that the function of the church? Uh, so he was irate about the, these sales. And so uh, he wrote these, these 95 theses in Latin, but you know, some wise guy grabbed them and translated them into German and they, they hit the printing press and they were, they were all over Germany in no time. And Luther finds that he's embroiled in something much larger than he ever bargained for. So he was stepping on the Pope's income and authority. So what does he do? He writes a letter to Albert, the archbishop, trying to explain himself. And so he doesn't know that, that Albert is part of the problem, right? It was Albert's conspiracy in the first place. So he writes a letter explaining himself, saying that he's only trying to protect the Pope from what he might not know about that's going on at these low levels. Well, Albert sends the, sends the 95 Theses and uh, Luther's letter on to the Pope. And so uh, you have Luther who, who's trying to do a good thing and he finds that he has uh, you know, stirred up the bees nest, so to speak, right? He, he's, he's poked the bear because he's gone all the way to the top with this corruption that he didn't even know uh, was there. Well, the church tried to stifle Luther. They wanted to use uh, his monastic order to sit on him, essentially, and say, uh, tell Luther that he's not allowed to, to uh, preach against indulgences. And so uh, his, his jurisdiction was run by this man, Frederick the Wise, who was the elector of Saxony. An elector is one of six people who votes for the Holy Roman Emperor. And so he's a man of great power. He, he's not to be messed with. He's not going to be intimidated by, uh, by the Pope's power. And so he says, you know, I kind of sympathize with Luther and I'm not going to discipline him. And so Luther uh, is empowered by that and he starts writing pamphlets uh, against the, the, the papacy and the sale of indulgences. Uh, and so uh, the church then invited Luther to a debate, to debate these issues. 
Uh, and the, the debate was going to be with this man, Johann Eck, a very skilled debater, and it was supposed to take place in this place called Leipzig. And this is an artist's depiction of Eck and Luther uh, yelling at each other from the podium, uh, across, uh, across the podium, across the room, talking about this, this sale of indulgences. And so uh, Eck was very skilled, and he got Luther to admit that it is possible for the Pope to err which is the very thing that got John Hus burned at the stake 100 years ago. And he also got uh, uh, Luther to say that the uh, Bible has authority over the Pope, another thing that, that got Hus burned at the stake. And then finally, uh, Luther, in a fit of rage, Luther was, uh, he was impulsive, and, and he would blurt things out, and, and he was a man of high passion. Uh, he yelled out at one point during this debate, I am a Hussite, which was really a bad thing to say because, <laughs> you know, being associated with a Hussite is to be associated with a convicted, condemned, and executed heretic. And so that's not what you want to be, uh, especially when you're, when you're in the hands of the authorities at that point. So uh, Luther was not uh, reprimanded or, or you know, killed, obviously, at that thing, but, uh, but he lost the debate. But, but at the same time, he's, he's gaining followers among the German population. And so that, that turns out to be uh, something that he's going to rely on in the future. Well, after this debate, in 1520, uh, Pope Leo X issues a papal bull. Uh, and this is the, the first page of the papal bull. The papal bull is called Exerge Domine. Papal bulls are papal decrees, and they're named for the first uh, several words uh, in Latin of, of the papal bull. Uh, Exerge Domine means, arise, O Lord. There is a wild boar in the vineyard. We need to take this guy out. Uh, and so that was what the papal bull was all about. And it demanded that Luther recant all that he had written and said within 60 days or he was going to be excommunicated. And so Luther, in typical Luther fashion, what do you think he did? He burnt it in public uh, against the Pope uh, and said, basically, uh, take that, Pope. Uh, and, and so he was excommunicated in 1521. And so after that, well, then Pope Leo got himself upset and he invited uh, Luther to come and, and defend his views at something called the Diet of Worms, which is not a weight loss program. Uh, a diet is a council and worms is a place. And so uh, Luther was going to go to this place called uh, Worms and he was going to defend his views there. And so when he gets there, they say, are these your books? Are these your writings? And Luther says, yes, they are. And they say to Luther, well, we demand that you recant. And Luther says, well, what would you like me to recant? Show me what is not biblical, and I will recant. They said, we want you to recant every bit of it. Luther says, give me 24 hours to think about it. And he goes into his room and has a long and tortured night of the soul, praying over what to do, because he knows what happened to John Huss 100 years ago. And so he comes back the next morning and they ask him, will you recant? And, and here's Luther, uh, I miss Charles V, there's Charles V. Here's Luther standing before the Diet of Worms. He says, I cannot and will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. So help me God, amen. Well, that was a stand, right, that he took against the Holy Roman Emperor himself. Uh, Charles V was the leader of half of Europe at the time, and so a man of incredible power, uh, and Luther stood up and told him that he would not recant any of that. Well, he was granted safe passage, uh, but remember John Huss was granted safe passage 100 years ago, and they burned him at the stake anyway. They said, we don't have to honor our, our safe passage to heretics. 
Well, Charles the, Charles V honored his safe passage to Luther, and Luther was allowed to leave. So he leaves in a horse-drawn wagon, and as he's, he's going through the forest, his wagon is surrounded by men on horseback, and Luther thinks, it's curtains for me. Uh, but the good news for Luther was that the men were actually sent by his, his ally, Frederick the Elector. And so they kidnapped Luther, essentially, for his own safety. And they took him to this place called the Wartburg Castle. And Luther lived there for many years. And at Wartburg Castle, uh, uh, under the cover of, of secrecy, he grew a beard, which was, uh, of course, against anything that monasticism would have allowed. So that was rebellion in itself. But then he took... Uh, Erasmus's Greek translation of the Bible, and he translated the Bible into German, the New Testament, in 1522, and the entire Bible into German in 1534. And that's what Luther's original Bible looked like. And so now, anybody in Germany who could read could have the Bible in his own language, which to you and me, uh, you, have, you probably have 10 Bibles in your house, right? Nobody had Bibles in these days. Luther made it possible with the printing press and his German translation of the Bible to allow the common man, everybody had a Bible. Well, Luther was still in trouble and this didn't help his cause any. The, the Pope was sure not happy that uh, the Bible was now in German and the common man was reading and he's still in, uh, in hiding. A few years passed and, and now Lutheranism is on the rise and so what happens is that in 1530, they have something called a diet at Augsburg. And what it is, is that uh, the Protestants are trying to mend fences a bit, and the Catholics also, with the Protestants, or I should be calling them Lutherans. There are not Protestants at this point. They're just Lutherans. These Lutherans and or, uh, Catholics are trying to mend fences. And at the diet of Augsburg, um, Luther's friend and apprentice, uh, this guy, Philip Melanchthon, wrote what is called the Augsburg Confession. And he's trying to show uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, uh, what Lutheranism believes and that it's not heretical. Uh, but he's, he's saying uh, to him, uh, this is the way of salvation. Uh, and it's contained in the Augsburg Confession. There had never been a church document written on how one is saved. There's been no church doc doctrine, uh, written doctrine on salvation before the Augsburg Confession. And the Augsburg Confession essentially said that, that what Catholic teaching amounts to is salvation by works. And we don't believe that. Lutheranism believes the authority of the Bible over the Pope, that salvation is by uh, justification by faith and not by works. Uh, and it insisted on the authority of the Bible. On the Lord's Supper, it said somehow that Christ is especially present at the Lord's Supper in and around and over and under the elements, but the bread and the wine do not actually become the body of Christ. So we have a new doctrine called consubstantiation, Jesus with and around the elements, but not transformed into the elements, which was what transubstantiation was. That's the doctrine where Christ actually becomes, or the, body, the bread and the wine actually become the body of Christ. Well, what happened was that that, that was the Lutheran position on, on a lot of, of, uh, of, of those things, but, but they also held on to a couple of things that were Catholic in nature, which was infant baptism. They still believed in infant baptism, and they believed that baptism uh, resulted in you returning to a state of grace. So there were a couple of things that, that Charles V might have agreed on, but on the whole, Charles V would not agree to it, and the two sides literally prepared for war. They were going to go to war against each other, but fortuitously, 
the Ottoman Turks had arisen again, and they were going to come, and they were going to invade again, and so instead of fighting the Lutherans, uh, Charles V had to marshal his forces against these Ottoman Turks. And uh, so he did that, and, and not only that, but he needed the support of the Lutherans to fight against the Ottoman Turks. And so where he wants to go around killing Lutherans, now he's got to grant Lutherans formal religious toleration uh, so that he can have their support. And so you just see God working behind the scenes here, right? And, and, and by the time Charles V beat back that Ottoman invasion, uh, Lutheranism had spread to the point that it could not be stopped. It was too late for the movement to be stopped. And so uh, that's, that's what Martin Luther is credited with. Uh, he, he started that whole fire. Well, later in his life, from 1533 to 1546, he was the dean of the University of Wittenberg. And during this time, he suffered from a lot of uh, physical ailments. Uh, and he basically became a very crotchety and nasty old person. And, and you know, some of the things that he wrote, we, we cannot stand here and, and, and condone. He wrote uh, a couple of treatises, particularly against the Jews, one of them called The Jews and Their Lies. And he called for Jews to be persecuted and killed. And so uh, that's, that's what happened with Luther later in his life. And I don't know if he was a racist his whole life or if he became a racist, but uh, Luther was not all good. And neither are any of we, right? And neither are any of we all good. And so uh, what it shows me is that, that God can use anybody, even a sinner, even a racist, uh, to do his will. And it was God's will that the gospel be recovered, and he used Luther to do it. Uh, Luther died in 1546, but his movement moved on uh, and lived on. There were wars against Lutheranism uh, after a time, but, but they were not successful. And there was a second Diet of Augsburg in 1555 where uh, Catholics and Lutherans uh, came to an understanding, a, 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 an agreement, a deal where they, they both agreed that they would be recognized together. And so Lutherans were not going to be killed anymore. They were going to have this new compromise called the ruler rules the region. So if the ruler of a region is Catholic, uh, everybody in that jurisdiction has to be Catholic. And if the ruler is Lutheran, then everybody in that jurisdiction is Lutheran uh, as well. And so the, mono the monopoly of the Catholic Church was broken and Lutheranism was here to stay. And once Lutheranism was here to stay, we're going to have new strands of Protestantism, that it, that's what it will come to be called, that are going to grow and arise. And, and there was Zwingli and there was Calvin and others who followed uh, 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 Luther. Uh, but Luther was the match that started the fire. Why? Why is Luther the match that started the fire? Because the corruption was in place, but the people were starved for the word of God. There was no pre preaching of the word of God. There was only preaching of you're going to hell or you're going to purgatory. And the people wanted good news, and Luther was able to give them that. He uncovered and recovered this simple gospel. Uh, he had a simple message that allowed people to be assured of their salvation and of something that they never had before. And people were now free from the yoke of the church and all the entrapments of the sacrificial system and the sale of indulgences. So last week we asked several questions and we said, how did the Reformation answer those questions? So let's look at some of them. What is truth? Where is it found? Is it found in the Bible or is it in popes and in councils? Look what Mark chapter 7 verse 9 says about it. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your 
tradition, right? Jesus is railing against them, elevating their traditions over the word of God. And this is what Luther was saying too. The word of God reigns supreme. What is salvation? How is it achieved? Do we work for it or has Christ already purchased it for us in full? We know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God and not by work so that no one can boast. And so the Reformation insisted that grace is received one time and we're justified by faith uh, one time over a system where the church infuses grace uh, incrementally by the, by the making of sacraments. And finally, what is the church? Is it the priesthood or are all believers part of the church? 1 Peter 2.9, you are, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. You see what happened? Everybody is the priesthood. They're all the church, not just the priests. And they all may declare the praises of him who called. So not only are we all the church, but we're all preachers too. And that's what we're supposed to do. Go out and preach the word. The gospel was recovered. Jesus secured the reality of our salvation by his death on the cross. He didn't say, I'll pay 80%, you pay 20 with your good works. He didn't say, I'll pay 99%, you owe me a percent uh, by the good works that you do. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. So if you are trying to do anything to earn your salvation, anything at all, then you are not properly understanding the gospel message. Jesus paid it all. Uh, and all we have to do is receive the gift. And even the ability to receive the gift is a gift of God. And so we praise God for these things. The legacy of Luther's Reformation is the five solas, right? Uh, the five solas say, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, with scripture alone as our only final decisive authority. And so that's what came out of the Reformation. And we'll develop that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, as, we, as we talk about it some more. But here's what I wanna say in terms of application. Uh, if we're gonna cause a reformation in our own day, we have several things we need to understand. Remember last week we said, uh, I think the time is ripe for another reformation because of what's going on in our world. But if we're going to uh, cause a reformation in our day, we have to understand that the religious are the hardest to convert at all. It was true of the Pharisees. It was true of the Catholic Church in Luther's day. And it's even true today. Uh, the Pharisees didn't want to give up their position in place. Jesus threatened that, so they killed him. Uh, the, Luther and his predecessors challenged the Catholic Church of its day, and they killed Hus, and they killed many others. And one of Charles V's biggest regrets was that he did not kill Luther when he had his hands on him. He let him go, and look what happened. Uh, Lutheranism took off. Today, Christians are being killed all over the world uh, by radical uh, Muslim jihadists who think that they are doing Allah a favor by killing Christians. And so not much has changed, right, in 2,000 years. Christians are being killed uh, more today than they ever were. And so the religious are always going to be the toughest to convert because they're always trying to do something for God, not realizing that the doing has already been done, right? Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins so that we might have eternal life. And we have to pray that God would open their eyes so that they would see that Jesus has already done the work and that you don't have to continue to do. Second, if we're going to understand that, uh, if we're going to have a reformation in our day, we have to understand that there are people in our path who are seeking truth 
and they don't know where to find it. Uh, in Jesus' day, people were under the yoke of the Pharisees, and they believed what the Pharisees told them. Uh, when Jesus revealed the truth, many worshipped him and came to faith. In Luther's day, people were under the yoke of the trappings of the church, but when they came to realize the simple gospel message, uh, they glorified God and they rejoiced that they were saved. And today, in our age of apathy and postmodern thought, uh, and people deciding for themselves what truth is, there are still people seeking truth. Uh, at my niece's funeral a couple of weeks ago, I talked to people who were talking to me about heaven and karma, uh, heaven and people becoming angels, uh, heaven and people doing good works to attain to heaven. And these are good people, people who are seeking God, but people who are confused about what it takes to get to heaven. These are people that we will cross in our paths every day if we engage them. Uh, and so these people are, they're seeking hope, but, but the, the, where they're finding their hope is just clouded in all kinds of things that, that has masked what the true gospel is. Uh, it's, it's new age philosophy, it's exaltation of man over God. And, and so we see it today like we saw it back over the past 2000 years, it's the same problem showing itself in different symptoms. Uh, and so the gospel is our only hope, and I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to speak truth to these people at that funeral uh, and, and talk to people about the way that you get to heaven and that Jesus is our only hope. And so uh, we have to do that if we're, going to, if we're going to ever have a reformation in our day. And on top of that, it's gonna take a few courageous people who are willing to speak the truth Think about how courageous Martin Luther was to say, here I stand, knowing that the stake possibly awaited him. Uh, and think about how courageous missionaries of today are. They're going into dangerous places, saying dangerous things that can get them killed and often do get them killed, and yet they still go and they preach the word. Uh, we don't face this kind of danger here in the United States, at least today, uh, for the most part. Uh, and yet we are afraid to preach the gospel and I'm lumping myself in with this too, because we don't want to be embarrassed and we don't want to be rejected. And Martin Luther would have laughed at us. Rejected? Embarrassed? Where's the stake? Uh, where's the fear of death, right? There, we don't have that. We don't preach the gospel because we're afraid to be embarrassed or rejected. And so I would like us, myself included, to think about how we can go about preaching the gospel with more courage, especially as we're thinking about moving into our new building uh, just a few weeks hence, we hope. Uh, and so next week, we're going to talk about uh, the expansion of the Reformation to Switzerland and France with Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin uh, and see how the Reformation gained steam as it uh, continued to work out its theology. So we'll talk about that next week. Uh, but for now, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for the Reformation. We thank you for Martin Luther's recovery of the gospel. We thank you for you arranging the pieces so that this would become possible, Lord. Uh, and we thank you for people who had courage, uh, Luther and those who preceded him, who were able to say, this is wrong and we will not stand for it. We are here to speak truth. We don't care what men say. 
we care what God says, and so we speak the truth. And Lord, give us the courage in our day to speak the truth, not afraid of the consequences, embarrassment, rejection, fear, whatever is stopping us, Lord. I pray that we would uh, go forth from here and boldly proclaim the gospel so that people might be saved, Lord. And we thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. And when we believe that, we have eternal life, Lord. We thank you for that precious gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.